I'm Bill Lawrence, and this is my big bag of onions. The main to California, broken hearts and parts unknown. And through this night we'll share a lover On that dark radio I got so many beasts on Hands pressed cold against the phone See all the stars descending right in It's a kind of emptiness 
It's all about the onions, you know. working men had been heard from before. Piers Plowman, chancing one summer day upon a field of folk. John Clare's shepherd, observing cabbage fields and nesting birds. D.H. Lawrence's taciturn miners, washing off their grime before the fire. But the toiler on the assembly line had never spoken up so loudly until Alan Silito, in Saturday night and Sunday morning, 1958, produced Arthur Seaton. 21-year-old Arthur, between chamfering and drilling to produce 1,400 parts a day at the Raleigh Bicycle Factory in Nottingham, 45 Bob don't grow on trees, led a life of rampant cuckoldry with Brenda, so lush and loving, in Strelly Woods. Time flies and no mistake, sighed Arthur. And it's about time it did, because I've done another 200, and I'm ready to go home and get some snap and read the Daily Mirror or look at what's left of the bathing tarts in the weekend mail. But Brenda, I can't wait to get at her. And now this chamfer blade wants sharpening. This cocky blitz had soon personified in film by Albert Finney, gave English society a shock, besides its first full description of a backstreet abortion with hot gin and boiling bathwater.
You're listening to Big's Big Bag of Onions. You're listening to Big's Big Bull. Look here, you're listening to Bill's Big Bag of Onions. No one knew quite how the accident happened. How at some point in the 1970s, Heathcote Williams set himself alight on the doorstep of his lover, Jean Shrimpton, an icon of the age, and ended up in Charing Cross Hospital. It had evidently started as a conjuring trick. He loved magic because it gave the illusion of breaking rules. But it was unclear whether he had been eating fire or breathing it. Breathing it, of course. Words flamed out of him all the time, seeming to make electricity flow through his wild red hair. Poetry was nothing if it was not an incandescent roar. Its role was not to tranquilize. He could write with gentle lyricism if he chose, especially when following in his most famous book, Whale Nation, Endangered Creatures Through the Sea. From space, the planet is the territory not of humans, but of the whale, somersaulting like angels or birds, naked with skin like oiled silk, smooth as glass, no drag, no turbulence of velvet energy. But the beauty ended with the winches, spades and slicers of a factory ship in a slick of oil and blood. To shock and expose was his job, poetry had to unsettle, subvert, with luck destroy whatever stopped human beings thinking freely and acting justly, as he understood justice, consumerism, militarism, modern psychiatry, ossified institutions, brain-numbing new technologies.
put the best face they could on him. A real southern gentleman, from owlish glasses to black wingtip shoes, who would hold the door for any woman and thank you with a nod and a smile for smoking North Carolinian tobacco in his office. A kind-hearted soul who had adopted a boy with cerebral palsy, who bought ice cream for his congressional pages and was delightful at dinner, both to Democrats and Republicans. A true patriot who saw America as God's country and the world's hope, who defended its values against the liberal media and the muck of decadent artists, and who had no truck with arms control treaties, test ban treaties, missile reduction, or any crimp on sovereignty. An anti-communist to make all others fade, convinced that the Soviets were irredeemable cheats and liars, determined never to deal with Fidel Castro's Cuba, but to make sure the tyrant left it in a vertical position or a horizontal position, preferably the latter. A doughty lover of liberty, who believed government should be small, laws unobtrusive, and men left alone to take responsibility for their own lives and their own decisions. Compromise, hell, he wrote in 1959. If freedom is right and tyranny wrong, why should those who believe in freedom treat it as if it were a roll of Bologna to be bartered a slice at a time. You're listening to Bill's Big Bag of Onions. Can't believe what isn't true 
Imagine a frictionless ball rolling around a billiard table. Next, work out on variously shaped tables which set of ricochets would merely repeat a pattern and which would eventually cover the whole surface. Full answers are still elusive, but it is the sort of mathematical puzzle that outsiders can at least imagine. By Maria Mirzakhani's standards, such problems were mundane. In her world, the billiard tables were abstract geometric objects which stretched and warped. The problems involved not just one table, but a modulized space of all possible such surfaces. Fans called her work on these mind-spinning abstractions the theorem of the decade. Until the joy of maths claimed her, she wanted to be a novelist. Books cost next to nothing in the Iran of her childhood, and her earliest ambition was to read everything. Later, her maths had a literary tinge. She thrilled to the unfolding plot lines in the problems she studied, though unlike in literature, she said, they evolved like live characters. Just as you start getting to know them, you look back and realise your first impression is mistaken. Oh, anywhere will we 
Winter has come and in no strength in the sun And when it's gone and we shall we be When all those colors have faded When old Jack comes to call Don't tell him no, tell him maybe Oh, now, Annie, he God bless us all Oh, yeah, Annie, God bless us all Every true-born Englishman knows that the law is an ass. Rules are better honoured in the breach than the observance. Judges are best represented in a chorus line at the doily cart. The English constitution is a vague formulation in someone's head, and that foundation of English liberties, Magna Carta, is best known for banning eel traps in the Thames. The firm clip of the law is for the other fellow. Behind the furled umbrellas and decorum, Englishmen are anarchists. Or, as John Mortimer liked to think of them, votaries of my darling Prince Kropotkin. Mr Mortimer's great service to his country was to sum up in one person both the weight of the law and a sharp, rollicking scepticism of it. He was an eminent lawyer, entering chambers in 1948 and becoming, in time, a Queen's Counsel and a Master of the Bar. Few excelled him in cross-examination, the art of which, he liked to say, was not to examine crossly. Yet the law was only his day job, giving him the money and the material to write novels. At the bar he dressed scruffily, lest anyone take him for a conventional lawyer. He made fun of the old sweethearts on the bench, who would pass a death sentence and then go out for buttered muffins.
You're listening to Bill's Big Bag of Onions. He has almost been cropped from the photograph, and his name is a blank in the key. An interpreter's lot, perhaps. But there on the extreme left, legs crossed, with his long, intent nose and his immature moustache, he is 22, young for such work, sits Richard Zonenfeld. His fingers are hooked softly round the table end, like a cat about to pounce. The setting is room number one in the Palace of Justice at Nuremberg. The time, the summer of 1945. Beside him, past the stenographer, is Colonel John Amon, the chief pretrial interrogator for the tribunal that will put Hitler's henchmen on trial for war crimes. Opposite him, placed directly in the window light, is Rudolf Hess. Hess, who flew an abortive peace mission to England in 1941, is already the original lunatic to Mr. Zonenfeld. The pockets of his greatcoat are filled with scraps of food brought from England, the proof, he says, that the British tried to poison him. He is playing the amnesiac, remembering nothing of his career. But Mr. Zonenfeld will catch Hess out when he uses cladder, a student word for a folder, and then quickly says he doesn't know why. Teenage slang, said Mr. Zonenfeld firmly, could hardly be the vocabulary word of an amnesiac. For three months of evidence gathering before the Nuremberg trials began, Mr. Zonenfeld's official label was chief interpreter. Less officially, but with permission, his job was to startle, harry, and trick the accused into admitting what they had done.
the moment had almost come. His wrists had been manacled, his eyes blindfolded, his mouth was stuffed with rags, groggy with ether, nauseous with the rocking of the boat. He could dimly feel that weights had been attached to his legs. His kidnappers, presumably from the Korean CIA, were discussing what they would do if, instead of sinking, his body floated back up. Then, as Kim Dae-jong explained later, Just when they were about to throw me overboard, Jesus Christ appeared before me with such clarity. I clung to him and begged him to save me. At that very moment, an airplane came down from the sky to rescue me. Who was really behind the small plane, red light flashing, that warned the kidnappers not to kill him on that day in 1973 is still obscure. But heavenly benevolence was a force Mr. Kim devoutly believed in. There were other interventions, the papal letter that saved him from hanging in 1980 and the divine diversion of the heavy truck that deliberately rammed his car in 1971, leaving him with a smashed hip that hobbled him all his days, but alive. Under Korea's post-war dictators, Mr. Kim was a dangerous man. For 40 years, his left-liberal sympathies kept him in prison, under house arrest or in exile.
to Bill's big bag of onions. <laughs> Eyewitness evidence may be all very well in a court of law, but it cuts no ice with scientists. Robert Rhines knew that perfectly because he was a scientist himself and a good one. In his work to develop radar, sonar and ultrasound, he performed all the necessary tests and provided all the proofs required. But when a shining grey hump appeared from the waters of Loch Ness, bringing a hectic lump to his throat and causing him to run across the road, jamming first a telescope and then binoculars to his eyes, he was simply a man who knew he had seen a monster. Science trailed uncomfortably behind. What he saw on that day in June 1972, he described as well as he could. It was a hump about 25 feet or 8 meters long, covered with rough, dark grey hide like an elephant's back. The creature it belonged to ploughed against the current for a while and then disappeared. It had presumably returned to its haunts in the murky, peaty depths of the lake. But Mr. Rhine's life was upside down. The star lecturer in innovation at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, the founder and president of the Academy of Applied Science, now had a myth on his hand.
Listening to Bill's Big Bag of Onions. He died a much loved Englishman, renowned for his untidy shock of white hair, his shambling wanderings on Hampstead Heath with his dog Dizzy, his devotion to literature, and the modesty that allowed him, when leader of the Labour Party, to stand in his anorak waiting at the bus stop, comme tout le monde. Deep into old age, half blind, He never failed to keep up with the latest works on his great loves, Swift and Byron, and to hold forth over breakfast 
several eggs running all over his plate, about the latest troubles of his beloved party and its prospects for the future. He was not always so popular. As a left-wing journalist working for the right-wing proprietor Max Beaverbrook before, during and after the war, the vituperative scorn of his prose injured those who didn't realise that it masked a complete lack of personal malice. But age and familiarity smoothed the sharp edges. Sweet man, Michael, remarked Anthony Crossland, a revisionist socialist who, in the 1970s, had spent most of his time fighting him. The leadership of the Labour Party was not a job which, for most of his life, he sought. When Jim Callaghan stood down as leader in 1980, the two men most likely to succeed him were Dennis Healy on the right and Peter Shaw on the left. But Mr Foote, by then 67, had developed a certain fond vanity which was worked on by a Machiavellian trade union leader, Clive Jenkins, to persuade him to stand. They served you champagne like a hero When you landed someone carried your back From here on out your patience zero Smelling ether as they hand you the rack Life is good You look around and think I'm in the right neighborhood But honey you just moved in Life is grand and wouldn't you like to have it go as planned? Go as planned. Hip hip hooray, hocus pocus. With some magic, you can fly through the air. Go. Cool. 
The fish houses of old Aberdeen were dark, reeking places, and the work was scabby. But it was all Stanley Robertson could get. At fifteen, he started, forty-eight hours a week, chopping up fish in some pokey hole, getting shocks from the finning machine, steeping his skinned, sore hands in brine or pickle juice. The smell was so scunnering, it made him want to puke up. And the lassies on the next bench thought it a great joke to throw fish eyes in his face. When he finally caught the bus home to his dinner, still with his wellies on, croaked after hauling wooden boxes of haddock or hanging kipper kilns in the roof, other passengers would say, "What a horrible smell of fish!" and change their seats. But they were characters who worked there: an old woman in a shawl who would bandage anyone's stinging fingers, a lad who did Elvis impressions. The foul-mouthed fishwives who treated each other like cat's dirt whenever one was out of earshot, and not least, Stanley himself. Mr. Robertson spent forty-seven years filleting fish for a living. With his bland face and steady ways, he might have tried to sell you insurance. Out of his apron, he wore a suit and a flat cap, always neat.
told me, if I'm not listening to Bill's Big Bag of Onions, I'm missing Bill's Big Bag of Onions. If I'm not listening to Bill's Big Bag of Onions, Bill's Big Bag of Onions. 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 I'm Bill Lawrence. Join me again soon for another Big Bag of Onions.